Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. So we've been in this series called Reflecting. It's called Visual, where we take a look at art that reflects the gospel story. Um, now, in week one, I invited you to do this. Would you share any art with me, broad, broad definition of art, any art with me that you think reflects the gospel story? And I just want to show you a few things that you sent me. It was, one was this. It's two skateboards cut off and sawn together to shape a heart. I don't know if it's like the gospel according to Tony Hawk. Or if it's like a mother's tribute to thank you, God, for helping my son survive the skateboard years. I don't know. This other one, uh, this is a saw that hangs in someone's house. Their grandfather painted on this saw. And it's like just a, I don't know if it's a connection to a gospel story, but it's like fond family memories. And it's a family treasure. This next painting, uh, it's called Treasure in a Field. I think it's kind of funny because it's, it's like... A yard sale kind of moment, but it reminds you of the parable of the story where someone finds a treasure while out in a field. Someone showed this to me. It's a photo of a Bible with spectacles. The concept that, God, I want my eyes in your words so it affects my heart deeply. Now, here's what's interesting. On our first Sunday together, after service, this woman came up to me. And she had tears in her eyes, and she was very emotional. She's like, I've never been to your church before. Some friends of mine invited me. They attend your church regularly. And uh, she shared just a very quick snapshot of a very long and large story. Her grandfather was an artist named A.E. Mitchell. And you can Google him and, and take a look at him. He creates all kinds of art, engraved art. You'll see three of them right up here. Clearly, by the uh, engravings, he's a follower of Jesus, and uh, he did all kinds of amazing art. Uh, he did drawings. Like if you go to the back of your Bible, you'll see maps and charts and things like that. There's one in here that uh, this is in the back of the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. He drew that. He was a master of, 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 of drawing, engravings. Um, there's a picture of him when he did ministry for a while in Brazil and uh, you recognize Billy Graham there in the middle? And just to Billy Graham's right, that's A.E. Mitchell. They did this crusade together. And so Lori, in this moment that she had with me, she, she and I have obviously been emailing back and chatting. That's where I got all of this from. But she said this. She goes, I'm on my way to Biola University. And at Biola University, there's a piece there that is a piece of art that my grandfather did that is permanently there. But we're going to go set up this temporary display of a lot of his other art. And I just, this moment has reminded me that it's worth it to preserve my grandfather's art because of the gospel message that's attached to it. The permanent piece that's in Biola, it's called the Victory Vase. This thing is a couple tons in weight. And one of the, the, the things about this vase is the stone that was used to bring it together. Missionaries brought these stones from the lands where they were at doing work and brought it together. And there's a story behind this. Um, it, it, it's just, it's so weird. Another facet of this story, um, her grandfather was, the, was an art teacher at Life Bible College down in Los Angeles. And when he had kids, his kids attended Life Bible College. 
And I think it was 1928 that his kids, who were musicians, came to this very church to assist in leading a series of revival meetings at First Baptist Church of San Jose. That's what this church was originally called. There were all of these things when she sat in our church that morning when we started this visual series where God was just encouraging her and affirming for her how important it is to carry the gospel story, even in the form of art. Now, not all your families are that rich and deep in art, but I just thought it was wild how God would bring somebody who's on a journey into our church this, on that morning to just encourage them. Here's the truth. God brought you here today to encourage you, maybe challenge you, maybe even correct some things in you. So, Lori, thank you for sharing that part of your, your story with us. So I'm going to show you a painting today. This is where we're going to start that we're going to dissect and appreciate. And I guarantee this picture is not hanging in your home. <laughs> so here's how we play this game. Um, I'm going to make some observations about this picture. And then I'm going to ask you this. Give me one word that encapsulates what's the, what this, this portrait, this painting is about. So here's just a couple of random, obvious observations. It's a robust man. He's well-fed. Fine clothes, right? Fancy red hat, gold chain, medallion around his neck. So clearly he is Italian. He's counting money at his table and he's got some kind of accounting notebook there. When you look at his face, I mean, is he shocked? Is he afraid? I don't think he's happy. There's a treasure chest kind of just in the lower left, just the corner of a treasure chest that you can see. That footstool that his foot is on, it's ornate, it's fancy, it's expensive. When you look in the background, there's all these lavish items behind him. The most shocking part of the picture is what? Yeah, and I first started writing, it's like, oh, it's the skeleton. You're like, oh, wait, 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 that's not actually a skeleton. That skeleton has skin on, so he's kind of, skeleton still has skin on. And this skeleton is leaning in towards him. And often the skeleton represents death. Yeah, see, look, there's some major art critics in the room. This is fantastic. And he's playing a violin. And I don't know what he's playing. It sounds like a somber song or seems like it would be a somber song. And if you notice this, he has one foot up. Can you see what he's standing on? An hourglass as if to say, hey, big fella, your time is running out. And if you look in the furthest background, there's a same scenario playing out. There's another skeleton with skin on a ghoul representing death talking to a younger man, and his hands are out like, what? Me? So question, what's one word that you would say encapsulates this whole picture? Mortality, love it. Doom. Creepy. <laughs> I love it. Regret, ooh. Cobb, what else? What was it? Hope, Okay. Look, there's always, a, there's always a positive person in the room. Fear. This painting is entitled Death and the Rich Man. 
Franz Franken painted it in 1610. Here's what's so interesting. That picture, it's full of detail, isn't it? You know how big the canvas was that he painted that on? Six inches by five inches. It's just slightly bigger than your iPhone. Maybe the same size as your Samsung. All of that great detail in this small little canvas. Um, He's actually painting a story that Jesus told. And it's a parable found in Luke 12. So open your Bibles, Luke 12. This parable is called the parable of the rich fool. Uh, There's no question about where this parable is headed. This man is rich and he's a fool at the same time. So before I read the parable to you, context is everything. Let me give you context to this story. Jesus is talking to thousands of people outdoors and he's, he's giving this message. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know how to follow me. I want you to know what it's like to, to be a follower of Jesus, how to honor God with your life. Listen, if you really honor God with your life, people will not appreciate you. They'll persecute you. It's going to be pretty hard. But I want you to have this conviction. To, and he's giving this message that's super critical. And it has all these parts to it that are like, this is what it looks like to honor God with your life. Now, in the midst of thousands of people around, this one guy speaks up. And you ever meet somebody who has kind of no social sense? Don't point to anybody. But they don't have any social sense. Like, there's a time and a place to say something. And you got to know the right time and the right place. And if you don't believe that philosophy, you're that person. The guy out of the crowd interrupts Jesus and he says, Yo, Jesus, like, do me a favor. Tell my brother to give me my share of my dead dad's stuff. He, he was actually a gangster from New Jersey. I don't know how else to make that sound. His question, it's actually not even a question. His request, his command of Jesus is actually because he has an agenda. So here it is right here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Put your face in your Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And if you just read that, you're like, oh, here's a guy, like maybe there's been an injustice done and there's been a wrong that's been done. And he's just saying like, it's not fair. Like my brother's ripping me off. But listen, it's right in the middle of this like important talk, message, sermon. It'd be like right now, this really important talk and sermon. I want to use like, listen, I need you to tell my brother to do something for me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between me, between you? Then he said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possession. So real clear, the context of this is greed. That's what he's going to talk about. Jesus didn't bring it up. The guy brought it up. The guy interrupted his, his gospel message, this really kingdom moment with this just selfish request, and he's like, okay, let's go there. Let's talk about greed for a moment. The word for greed in the Greek is also known as covetousness, and it means this, the lust to have more than one's fair share, a boundless grasping after more. Greed's like drinking salt water. When you're thirsty, you don't drink salt water, right? But greed is like drinking salt water, thinking the more you drink, the more it's going to quench your thirst, and you can drink salt water to the point that it actually kills you. 
And you can grasp after greed to the point that it will actually kill your soul. And out of this situation, Jesus tells them this parable, which is reflected in that painting. Here's the parable. Verse 16, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yields an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. All of that parable right there is about this one man having a self-dialogue. And God interrupts him, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Um, the same way that we pause and we take a look at the painting and we're like looking at the detail in the painting to see what it might mean and truly be about. Like you just walk by that painting and just don't pay attention. You're like, oh, a skeleton. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> no, you have to pause and, and reflect. I think you have to do the same thing with the scriptures and take a look at the, the, the aspects of, of this story. My wife and I, we were in Paris. Um, I like to say we spent a month in Paris one week. We just did a lot. I think we saw like half a dozen museums and we saw half a dozen museums before we went to the Louvre. Okay. I, I kind of had, I'm not much of a museum guy. You know, I can, I, I'm all in. I'm like, oh, check this out. But after like four days of this, you're like, can't do another museum. Go to the Louvre. 15 acres. Did you know that's how big the Louvre is? Like 15 acres. We covered it in two hours. You know, like they'll set up displays on one side and displays on the other. Walk right down the middle. Oh, look, that's cool. Wow, amazing. Oh, <laughs> we did 15 acres in two hours. It's okay. That's how some people do the scriptures. They're like, oh, I read a story. Okay, I'm out. And we don't pause long enough to appreciate. Now, I'm telling you, don't, don't do the museum that way, okay? I mean, there's so much richness to it. I just couldn't tolerate Paris any more than that. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to slow roll through this story to appreciate the depth of detail to what Jesus just said. Because this is the question. Why did Jesus label him a fool? I don't think there's just one reason. I think the first is this. This man, he was already rich, but he thought he needed more. Did you get that from the story? Here's what it said. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The abundant harvest didn't make him rich. He was already rich. He had everything he needed, wanted, and then above that. He was rich. Rich doesn't mean that your needs are met. Rich means you have more than you need. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Well, if he's rich, he already has enough. He thought his biggest need was storage. <laughs> he thought his biggest problem was, wow. Where am I going to store all my stuff? Is there not a, an American dream problem here? Like, you know, the storage facilities that they build all over the, maybe you have one. I don't mean to, I'm not calling you a fool. I'm just saying like, we spend money to store our stuff that often we never use. You ever watch TV storage wars? 
Just abandoned storage things that people are like, I'd never used it. I mean, anyways, sorry if you own one of those. His barns are full of stuff, but to keep more stuff, here's his solution. I know what I'll do. I will tear down the barns that I already have so that I can store more stuff. The man is a hoarder. He's hoarding his grain. One commentator said this. um, This is just speculation on his part, but he said this. So if he wasn't the only one who had an abundant harvest that year, if everybody around him had an abundant harvest, there's going to be a surplus of grain all over the place in his area of the world. And what happens when there's an abundance and a surplus? The price on the grain is going to drop, right? Simple economics. So he's going to store it and wait for the, the, the abundance to go away and wait for a scarcity moment so he can sell it for a higher price. Maybe this is one biblical scholar speculating on this. We don't actually know. So we got to stick to what's in the text. He doesn't recognize this though, that he has a bigger spiritual problem. Number two, he believed that his wealth actually belonged to him. Look at the detail of the text. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I will tear down my barns. This parable actually centers on this man's inner dialogue, and the only person in this man's story is him. Now, in the original Greek that this was written in, in this short little story, the word I appears eight times, and the word my appears four times. And you know what never appears in the story when the man is speaking? There's never a reference to God. And there's never a reference to anyone else. He makes a decision about what's, what's good for him. His reasoning is absent of, I wonder what God would want for me. What will I do with my crops? I'm going to take my stuff and store it in my new shiny barns. He makes a decision all on what he thinks is wise. The third thought is this. He thought he had control of his lifespan. This is what makes him a fool. If you go back to the man's inner dialogue, he says to himself, he's so proud now that he's come to this decision about storage and what he's going to do. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. You catch his assumption? He assumed that he had many years ahead of him. And that's the crux of the story, the surprise of the story, the moment where God interrupts him and he goes, you fool! This very night, your life will be demanded from you. There's a Latin saying, mors certa, hora incerta. It means this, death is sure, but its hour is unknown. Tomorrow, it ain't promised to anybody. Not you, not me, not even our kids, not our parents. But this man, he pretended like he had the rest of his life to get it right. Number four, I just think his philosophy on life was simply this. Easy equals happy. <laughs> easy equals happy. What does he say? Now that I made it, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, I think it's so fascinating because this is written 2,000 years ago, and yet it's still our philosophy today. I mean, when I say eat, drink, and be merry, you're like, oh yeah, that, that's, 
retirement, right? I mean, this is what people live for. I work so that I can vacation. I work all my life so that I can retire and eat, drink, and be merry. But the philosophy of life is very simple. It says easy equals happy. But think about this for a moment. Easy never shaped someone's character. Easy never revealed the grit and the determination and the perseverance in a person's life. Easy never made a hero. It's always challenge. It's always difficulty that shapes a person's character and is a story worth writing about. It's never worth drawing art about easy. It's never worth telling a story about easy. And this is the only place in the Bible that one person said where retirement is actually referred to and not spoken of positively. Let me say that again. This is actually the only place in in the scriptures where you'll find a concept of retirement. Done working, made my stuff, and now I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And it's not a positive example. So let me give you what I think it's saying. Retiring for the purpose of self-indulgence is not God's plan for anyone. You might be retired. God bless you. I hope you play golf and score low. Have fun. You've earned it. But if your whole retirement is gauged around self-indulgence to shoot a lower score, you know how many guys do that? Women do that? And then they find that they're in retirement and they're like, I just don't have a purpose to my life. You know why? Because the most fun you're ever going to have with your life is changing people's lives. That's why it's the purpose of our church is transforming lives. When you make a contribution that affects other people, when you live not just for yourself, but live for the the sake of being able to help other people, retirement is simply this. You're just no longer uh, in need of a paycheck. You you just don't need to work for a paycheck anymore. You're living a self-sufficient life. And then the question becomes, though, but what are you going to do with that? When you can be a part of changing another person's life and their story, then you will actually discover what true joy looks like. Now, it's not actually just words that reveal his actions or reveal his heart and his life philosophy. Because nobody is going to say this. Listen, my life philosophy is this. The goal of my life is to be greedy. (laughs) No one says that. No one with any social understanding says that, right? But I think our philosophies are revealed by our habits. Our hearts are revealed by our habits. What do you dream about then? What do our habits reveal about greed versus generosity. The fifth and final thing here. His self-centered philosophy left no room for God or people in his life. Like I said earlier, what is distinctly absent from this man's story is any reference to God or even any reference of the people who helped him pull in that abundant harvest. He didn't do it by himself. But who were his crops belonging to? It belonged to himself. There's no concept of God. God interrupts his story and says, tonight your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Such a great question. There was this one rich man and he he died and his family gathered in his lawyer's office to hear the reading of his will. And now wanting to know what they might inherit, they asked the lawyer, how much did he leave behind? And the lawyer looked at him and he said, all of it. Thank you. You got it. 
explain it to this half of the room over here. I mean, he left it all. He didn't take anything with him. I know they were asking, like, what percentage do I get? What do I get? This, that, or that. We all leave it all behind. If Jesus considered a man like this a fool, I think it's safe to conclude this, that Jesus would still consider the same kind of person a fool today. So, um, got quiet in here. <laughs> this is one of those messages that you're like, oh, wow, where is this headed? Um, it's pretty clear. This whole message, this is about greed. And Jesus is not a fan. And so the opposite of greed is generosity. And so instead of going, hey, are you a fool? I know if this is your first time to our church, super glad you're here. This is like one of those messages. Hey, you might be a fool if, like, Come back next week, okay? I mean, because <laughs> I know the fear amongst a lot of people is this. Listen, when I go to church, pastors, they just always talk about money. No, just sometimes the Bible talks about it. I'm, just, I'm not going to avoid it, okay? But the opposite of being greedy is the concept of being generous. And you're like, well, what, what does that mean then? Because the very story ends with this statement, verse 21. This is how it be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Well, it ends like, oh, okay, so instead of being greedy, I should be rich towards God. Doesn't that make you want to ask the question, how am I supposed to be rich towards God? Like, you're like, don't do it that way. Good luck. Be rich towards God. Let's all leave. You're going to be struggling. And so here's what we're going to do. What follows is a really dense text of how to be rich towards God. And this is what we're going to do together. We're going to run through the Louvre of the scriptures, okay? There's going to be more there than I'm ever going to be able to tackle in the next five minutes that I have left with you, okay? And so we're going to run through this scripture. I'm going to point to some things along the way, but I hope this week you will go back through and slow roll through and appreciate the details of Luke chapter 12. I would also write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. I don't know if that reference is in your note. It might be. It's another great statement that says this, Timothy, I want you to tell people who are rich in this world to do these things. And there's a whole list of things that he says, and you'll find joy if you do. Um, so here's the question. How can you be rich towards God? Let me just give you four things. We're going to fly through this. Jesus is teaching on how to be rich towards God. Um, by the way, Jesus is not against rich people. Are we clear on that? Uh, there, there's whole sections of scripture that celebrate rich people. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Two sisters and a brother. They hosted Jesus all the time. There was this one centurion who, who was rich and he built this synagogue for the Jewish people. They celebrate him. Jesus had this whole crew of women that went along with him that were financially wealthy who supported his ministry. He's not against rich people. He's against greedy people. Let's be super clear. Nothing wrong with being rich. So here's the first thing. Jesus would say this, trade in your financial worrying for trusting in God's provision. Here's where it comes from. Following this story, verse 22, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, about your body, what you're going to wear. Eat, drink, and be merry was the slogan. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. I mean, he's directly referencing the, the story he just told. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little, this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Let's stop being anxious about it and trust in God's unbelievable 
provision. Now, it's so interesting because we, we have this philosophy. Once I make it, then I'll be generous. No, you won't. And we're like, listen, listen, no, my philosophy is supported by Southwest Airlines. Hey, if, if something goes bad, an oxygen mask will drop down. Make sure you put one on yourself before you put it on your kids. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's a financial thing too, right? I'm going to take care of myself first so that I can better take care of others. It, it just never happens. If you are not generous from the beginning, you will not be generous when you've arrived. You know why? Because you never arrive. Because when we make it, <laughs> our lifestyle just increases with what it is that we've made. Do you remember when you were 20-something in the car you bought? Now, if your mom and dad had bought you a car, God bless you at that age, fantastic. But do you remember the first car you ever bought and owned? You're like, oh my gosh, I have this much money. This is the car I'm, I'm gonna buy. Now, if you're like, hey, I'm just gonna finance whatever and get the best car, whatever, that's a whole Dave Ramsey, don't do that thing, okay? But do you remember like, I'm 52. And the car I bought when I was like 20-something, I would never buy when I'm 52. Why? Because I can afford more now. Do you see what I'm saying? The quality of what we want and like just increases with the paychecks that we get. Um, second thing, I told you we're going to fly through this. Putting God first in your life leads to a happy life. Jesus said this in verse 30. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. Go after his kingdom. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing. And these things will be given to you as well. You have needs in your life. He's not saying every, everything you want in your life, I'm not just going to give it to you, but the things that you need in your life, trust me, I've got your back. I've got you. The happy life is not the easy life. It's a life of actually being dedicated to putting God first. And this isn't just a statement about money and wealth. I think it's a statement about character and values too. Seek first God's kingdom. You want to do something, do it right. But you don't know, understand, like the world around me doesn't do it right. So what? Jesus is like, just put my values first. Handle that well. Listen, in the dating world, it just doesn't work like that. Like the, the values are so screwed up. If you don't participate in the kind of values that they have, then I'm not going to meet the person I want and get married one day and like... But then you're going to marry somebody who doesn't have Jesus' values. Your life is going to be more jacked than it ever was before. Carries values no matter the cost. I think it's a story, too, about not just our wealth, but I think it's giving of our time and being generous with that. Some people are like, when I make it that one day and I get to this place, then I'll have time. <laughs> sure you will. Three, be generous to those in need. I think it's about living with a loose grip on stuff. Jesus said this, do not be afraid, little flock. He, no, when he says little flock, he's talking to his disciples, not the whole crowd. This is very specific for the group that is actually walking with him. In their lifetime, they're going to accomplish this. This is not for everybody, but it's an interesting principle to consider. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. I'm not saying, hey, let's go out. We're going to have the biggest church yard sale of all time. Bring everything. <laughs> He's talking to a small group of people that he, they're going to, for the rest of their lives, they're going to follow Jesus and, and they're going to build his church. And he's like, I don't want your stuff to get in the way of that. It's a good principle though. Does our stuff 
do the things that we're grasping after actually get in the way of following Jesus? Um, to be super clear, though, uh, this is not the concept of commune living or communistic living where you don't get to own any of your stuff. It's just divided up against amongst people. This is the big difference. In a communistic kind of thing, you don't own anything and the government just takes it all and they disperse it. This is take the stuff that God has blessed you with and you decide what it looks to be generous and give it away to people in need. It's in your hands. You decide. Um, and uh, man, I don't have time for this, but I, I want to be, I want to be pretty clear on this, um, because you're like, okay, what does it mean to be generous? Let, let me explain it this way. And this might be a little bit offensive to you, but I would challenge you. Um, if you want a good book that digs deeper into what it means to be generous, look up, um, Randy Alcorn's book, the treasure principle, the treasure principle, walk through it. If you're not sure what generosity looks like, if you know what the Bible says and you're clear on it, don't read it, okay? You got this. Let me explain it real quick. In the Old Testament, there was a thing called the tithe. It means 10%. So here's the question. I got 10 fingers here, right? Pretend these are 10 $100 bills, okay? Um, you, you have them, okay? They're, they're yours. So the question is this. Uh, how much is, is, is God's? <laughs> Thank you. All of it. I threw out the 10%, like, oh, what's a tithe? Because we talk about giving our tithes and our offerings. Like, the word tithe means 10%. And say, well, which one belongs to God? Well, this one over here, right? It's, it's one-tenth of what it is I have. So that $100 bill, that one $100 bill, that one belongs to God. And you're like, no, no, no. It actually all belongs to God. It's over it all belongs to God. And he's like, hey, I'll let you live off the other nine, but give me the one because it's going to prove that you actually... Trust me. So when it comes to tithes and offerings, I heard someone describe it last week as this. It's like, well, that, if you give that 10%, that's not actually generosity. That's just not stealing. Isn't that great? Generosity? Let's take that away. Yeah, you got nine. Now let's measure generosity. What do we do with that? And it is all just for us. Because as this goes up and they're no longer nine $100 bills, now they're nine $1,000 bills. then what do we do? We just have bigger needs, don't we? So it's clear, Jesus actually measures generosity off a percentage. Jesus is kicking it at the temple, looking at stuff, and um, these guys are dropping in big bags of money, like, oh, look at me give, look at me give, look at me give, and this poor widow walks up, and she just drops in these, embarrassingly, these two little copper coins. And Jesus is like, hey, 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 disciples, check her out. Look what she's doing. And they saw everybody dropping in these sacks of coins. They didn't even like, you know, like when you're at the, the grocery store and you're, you're like, you're going to turn in your coins for actual money that you can spend because who spends nickels, right? And you turn in, it's all, and it makes all this noise. You can see these rich guys coming up, giving their offering. This little lady comes up, throws in two copper coins. Jesus is like, stop, look at her. She gave more than everybody else. Because Jesus values generosity off a percentage. She gave a larger percentage of what it is that she had. By the way, if this is super offensive to you, um, it's not my teaching, it's Jesus's, so take it up with him. Okay. How do you, here's my last point, and I, I gotta cruise through this. I want you to evaluate your habits, how your habits reveal, how your habits reveal your heart. 
How do your habits reveal your heart? And you might be thinking, uh, there's, there's a verse there, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so if you want to know where your heart is, if your heart's following after God, just evaluate your treasure. Let me make it super clear. Um, look at your tax return. This is getting really practical. Look at what you made. It states in numbers what you made. And then there'll be a section about what you contributed. And look at what you gave. It's actually super simple. If you're a member of Church on the Hill and you like give to our church, like you can actually go on your profile and look it up and this is what you gave last year. And be like, oh, just compare it. Is it a tenth? I, I'm, I'm sorry if this is offensive. Like, but did you tithe? Did you give a tenth? Then the question becomes this. What else did you give last year? Like, like just to people. How, how did you share your time? God gave you a skill and a gift. Did you use it for the benefit of others or for your own kind of recognition or look what I did with myself? A question, how much are you storing? There's a great evaluation question about how your your habits reveal your heart. Like, what are you storing? It's going to be different for everybody about how you evaluate this, okay? And I want you to hear this. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, he was born into a wealthy family. He became a follower of Jesus. And at one point he's like, my family's wealth is getting in the way of me following Jesus. And the story is that in public, he took off the clothes that his, his family had like, and gave it back to his dad, walked away, story goes naked, and just like, my father now is my father in heaven. I can't let my family wealth get in the way of following Jesus. Franciscan monks, they don't actually own anything because they don't want the the wealth of this world to get in the way of their heart for Jesus. So let me give you three questions to avoid foolish living. And as we do, take a look at the picture that we talked about today. You'll get the questions. They're super easy. But I just want you to look at that picture for just a moment. What are you grasping for is the question. What are you pursuing, chasing? It might be fame. It's not maybe a material thing. What's the thing that you think about that, you, um, that you've sectioned off a piece of your brain, thought life, time, doing that you're going after? It just occupies your mental space, your desire. What are you grasping for? Second question is this. What are you hanging on to? I'm so convicted over this. I have a garage full of stuff. And... Uh, I hang on to it because, you know what, one year I might need that. (laughs) Some of it I haven't needed for 10 years. I just wondered, like, maybe somebody else needs it. But what are we hanging on to? And the third is this. What are we giving away? What if we did this? We just ran through the Louvre of the Bible in Luke 12. Would you go back this week and do a slow roll through it and read it and ask three questions? What are you grasping? What are you hanging on to? And what are you giving away? And here's why. I I pray to God that you hear me and believe me on this. This is not a fundraising campaign. We're not passing a basket. This is not about churches raising money. That is so far from from my hope in this. What I want to see is fully devoted followers of Christ whose hearts are discovering the joy that is found in living generously because you will never be more joyful than when you understand the generosity of changing other people's lives by giving away your time, talent, and resources. That is the place that I have found tremendous joy. Let's pray. God, forgive us 
Uh, Forgive me if I steered anybody in the wrong direction. Lord, we stand on your word and your word alone. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would clarify for us what you're calling us to do. I pray that you'd awaken our hearts to generosity. And Lord, I I remember in my 20s, I was stingy and I, I was stealing from you. I'll never forget in my 30s when you changed my opinion on all of that. And it was because of accountability. Thank you, God. Lord, thanks for the folks in this room who have lived a life of generosity. They've given so much time and volunteering and and resources. They've given their love to people when there's been brokenness in this room. And Lord, that kind of generosity is it's your gospel. It's who you that's who you are at your heart. So Lord, thanks for this moment. I pray that you'd put a finger on our heart about the next steps you want us to take. Lord, the only reason we're generous is because you've been so generous by giving your son's life for us. And for that, we say thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, stand with us. Let's sing.